Thank you. Please be seated. What we need today is we need less wimps and more warriors. Less wimps and more warriors. And the reason for that is because we live today in a battleground, not in a playground. We live in a battleground, not on a playground. One of my favorite stories is about some children that were in the backyard and it was just before the end of summer and they were somewhat bored with the games that they normally played and several suggestions were offered and every one of those suggestions was turned down until finally one of the children said, you know, I know a game that we can play. Let's play the game Jesus. And they said, well, how do you play that? The child said, well, it's easy. One of us will be Jesus and the rest of us will be those mean, cruel, wicked people who will hunt Jesus around the backyard, that's the perimeter, and we will kick him, spit on him, slap on him, call him names, and then play like we're going to crucify him. As you can imagine, there was no one who wanted to play the role of Jesus. But there was a little guy named Joey who was never selected to be really anything and was always selected last when the teams were being divided, and he sought this opportunity to shine, to be a major player in a game they were going to play. And so he volunteered to be Jesus. They gave him to the count of ten, and the cruelty began. They chased him around the backyard, and they kicked him and slapped him. A few spit on him, and they called him names, and they cornered him in the back corner of the fence in the yard. And they were all about to pounce on him all at the same time when Joey made this incredible cry. He cried out, Let's stop playing Jesus, and let's start playing church. Let's stop playing Jesus, and let's start playing church. Is there any difference between the church and Jesus? And the reason why I think we have a problem today in many churches is we have long forgotten the fact that we, as the church of Jesus Christ, are actually living day by day, moment by moment, week by week, on a battlefield rather than a playground. What we are doing is not play. It's not for entertainment. It's not simply just for the joy. What we are doing today is we are on a battlefield and we are fighting for the souls, the hearts, and the lives of men and women and boys and girls who desperately need to know Christ as their Savior and their Lord. You are on a battlefield today, not only for your own life, fighting an enemy that would seek to kill, to destroy, and to devour you, but they would also, this enemy, will destroy, kill, and devour your marriage. It will kill, steal, and destroy your family members. And he is on the prey, he is on the loose, he is on the hunt today to do whatever he can to destroy you, your marriage, your family, and Christ's church. He is relentless. He never takes a vacation. He never gives up. He knows, never goes on sabbatical. He is consistently, persistently seeking to devour and destroy whomever he can. And those who do not know him are already defeated. If those of us who are in the faith, those of us who claim to follow Christ, those are the ones, we are the ones who are primarily his target. We need to stop playing church, and we need to start following Christ, for Jesus was well aware that he was on a battlefield and not on a playground. Abram knew that he was on a battlefield, not a playground, and he was a warrior who is going to be called to fight literally for the salvation of his family member named Lot. 
For Lot, as we saw last week, has sought compromise after compromise. It has led him down the road to eventually now he's going to finally pay the dividends. There are going to be some consequences as a result of the choices that he has made. And some of us here this morning have made those kind of choices. We have made those kind of compromises. And as a result of that, we are now have fallen victim to the enemy and we're living in defeat. We're living in captivity rather than in freedom and rather than in victory. There are some of us today who may be living in victory, but we may have some family members today who are not living in victory. They have been captured by the enemy because of compromises that have led to poor choices that are leading to results in which they are eventually headed down toward the road of destruction, much like Lot has experienced in this passage that we read last week and this week. Who's going to stand in the gap for those family members? Who's going to do battle for those family members? We saw a clip, and we're going to see a movie at 4 o'clock today about a, about a lady who stands in the rock in that hard place, a warrior of prayer. She goes to a war room and prays, literally beseeching the throne room of God, beseeching on behalf of a family that is about to be destroyed and devoured by the enemy. Someone has to become a warrior. But in the world that we live in today, I'm convinced we have more spiritual wimps than we have warriors. If we do have warriors, we have many warriors who are sort of not as as engaged as we need to be. Abram was not an aggressive warrior. He was a warrior who was a defensive warrior, and he's going to come in defense of his nephew, Lot. So I want us to take a look at the challenge for us to become warriors who are willing to fight for our families. Now, there are several things in this passage that I notice in Genesis chapter 14 as we quickly go through this passage in which we're going to learn where warriors who fight for their family know several things. If you're fighting for your family or you need to fight your family, there are several things that you need to know. I'm convinced Abraham understood these principles. Let's take a look at the first one. A warrior fighting for his family will first of all know that compromise, compromise is indefensible. Compromise is indefensible. Let's take a look at the text. Uh, Ryan, you did a great job with those names, by the way. Where are you, Ryan? Great job. Would you come read it for me now? No. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Abna, or Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim, and king of Elam, title king of Gomorrah, and Merashbrah, king of Shoshanar, and Antioch, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Did you like how I read that, Brian? <laughs> so I thought I'd help you out, brother. What's happening here? We see that Lot, as we studied last week, has made compromise after compromise, choice after choice, that has caused him to be more and more distant from Abram and from God. And now what is happening in the region is clearly defined in the first seven verses of this passage, of which we're not going to take the time to read because they're also lined out for us in, chapter, in verse 8 and verse 9. Now what's going on? We have some rebellious nations who have decided to rebel against the dominant nations. And this one king, who is, whose name is really hard to pronounce, can you imagine uh, having to address him all the time and not knowing how to pronounce his name? But anyway, he's the, he's the head guy. And 
And uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are primarily now the, the center of his attention. They are the ones that, that this king is wanting to address. They have been rebellious. They have resisted his dominance. And as a result of that, he has got a coalition of four kingdoms. Now, keep in mind that, that the population of the world is not what we know of today. And so the kingdoms that we think about are the kings that we know about. They're more city-states than they are kingdoms. They are city-states. They're small cities uh, about the size of... Uh, I don't know, small town of a couple of thousand, name me one. Rose Hill, that's where I live. Small city states. And so each city state has a king, and they are considered kingdoms because the world is not that populated. And so we have these four kings that are coming from the north, and their primary target is Sodom and Gomorrah because of their rebellion. Now, what these four kings do is they move south toward this rebellious king of Sodom and of Gomorrah, their primary targets. They decide strategically what they will do is they will circle the cities that are the primary targets and defeat the smaller cities, city-states around them. And so there's a series of battles to the north, to the east, to the west, and the, to the south, and all of that. And they sort of begin to draw in the net around the primary target, which is Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah is pretty smart. They're pretty much aware of what's going on. And so they are able to get three other city-states to join with them in a coalition against the four. So you got five against four. The problem is the four that are coming from the north are stronger city states than the five that have gathered together. And Sodom is kind of being a little bit cocky, and so is Gomorrah, and they think they're a little bit stronger than they should be. And, and so they're defying this, this dominant force, and here they come. They're conquering the cities around them, and they're beginning to draw on the net. You follow with me? So there are battles that are happening before the major battle that is about to take place near the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea or the valley that is described here in the text. Now, while this is going on, Lot, our primary interest here is thinking what? I mean, he's, he's not probably at this point living in Sodom. He is more than likely businessing and conducting affairs and He's sitting in the government. He's trying to influence the city. He's trying to make a living and trying to prosper his people. And so he's very connected to Sodom. And he sees these kings coming from the north, beginning to engage these battles and defeat these smaller city-states, drawing in the net towards Sodom more. And he's living just outside of Sodom. So what would you do if you were Lot? Verse 12 tells us what he did. He moved inside of the walls of Sodom. Why would he do that? For security reasons, Lot decided that he would trust Sodom, a wicked city, rebellious and defiant of God, who has its own little G-O-Ds, rather than trusting the Jehovah God, the God of Abraham, the God of his forefathers, he moves into Sodom for self-preservation. He is trying to defend what he possesses. He is trying to defend what he has attained. He is trying to defend what he has so far gained, and he hopes to gain more as a result of this move. He's trying to protect what he has. Now, the reason why this is an indefensible move on his part is is because he cannot protect 
what he has because he's living outside of the plan, the purpose, and the will of God for his life. He's living in rebellion, defiance, and he's living in distance toward God. And because of his rebellion toward God, even though and in spite of all that he tries to do to protect what he has, he can't defend it. He can't protect it. It's going to be taken from him anyway. There's a lesson for us to learn here. That whenever we live a life of compromise, and even though we may be experiencing the common grace of God, and God may allow us to prosper, God may allow us to advance, God may allow us to attain, even in our compromise, even in our rebellion, when it comes time for the judgment of God to affect those who are compromising and living in defiance to God, no matter how hard a person tries to protect what he has, it's not going to escape the judgment of God. You cannot protect anything that you have. I don't know about you, but the stock market just went belly up here just a couple of days ago, didn't it? Anybody panic? Come on, be honest. Anybody freak out? Did your portfolio all of a sudden just go... And some of you are not being honest. Who, who protects your portfolio? Who protects your business? Who protects your retirement? And whom should we place our trust? And here Lot is living, though, in compromise. He's not putting his trust in God at all. And because he's not putting his trust in God, he's trying to sort of self-preserve what he has attained. And that is the most idiotic, mindless, fruitless thing that a person can do who's living in rebellion toward God. And any warrior knows that only God can defend what he has given. Compromise is indefensible. And no matter how much Lot tries to defend what he has, he's going to lose it all. Secondly, a fighting warrior who's waging war for his family knows that not only is compromise indefensible, but consequences are inevitable. Look at verse 11 at the consequences that happen that are inevitable to happen because you, you defy God and run from God, resist God and rebel against God long enough, common grace is going to end. And the judgment of God is going to come. At some point, your chickens do come home to roost. There is a payback. There are dividends. There is a judgment of God. One of the greatest blessings I've had in the last eight years, honestly, is for the closing of Jezebel's on Highway 46. I have been praying for seven years I pass that sometimes twice, sometimes four times a day, coming and going from Wichita. And every time I go by, I pray against it. It's taken seven years of praying against that wicked place for that thing finally to close. I have prayed that people go blind. <laughs> I have prayed that they do something financially responsible. I have prayed that, I, I mean, I've prayed all kinds of prayers. And who would know that the police would invade and find all kinds of illegalities there and eventually they would lose their liquor license. And you imagine that you can't have what they have without liquor. Imagine that. There are consequences that are inevitable, not only for those who do wickedness, but I think even for believers who continue to rebel and defy God, there are going to come 
consequences. And Lot is about to experience the consequence of his rebellion. Verse 10, now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fell to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. There's a conflict, and this conflict is going to wind up humiliating for Sodom and Gomorrah. They were kind of a little cocky, and they kind of got a little bit too big for their britches, and they thought they were somebody special, and they thought that they had the power and the resources and the soldiers and the weaponry to be able to, to engage in this conflict and wind out victorious. But the indication of the passage here is they were not only just defeated, they were humiliated. They were humiliated. Sodom and Gomorrah fled in humiliation. It was a, an overwhelming defeat that was so quick and so devastating that Sodom and Gomorrah were humiliated and they were running literally for their lives. And notice in the conquest, they were running so quickly that they fell into tar pits. There were tar pits in the region. And they were running so quickly that they didn't realize where they were going and they just ran into the tar pits. And those that ran into those tar pits wind up dying. Those that didn't run into the tar pits eventually made it to the hills to safety. Many scholars believe that the king of Gomorrah died, but we will learn eventually that the king of Sodom somehow survives. But he doesn't have an army and he doesn't have anything left. And so not only was it humiliating, but it was a conquest that was devastating. Took all of their possessions, but notice not only their possessions, but their provisions. Nothing left. The enemy took everything, and that's what the enemy does. He's not just content, just kind of, you know, just a little beat on you a little bit. He wants it all, and he will not rest until he has taken it all. But notice then the consequences of Lot described in the text. Interesting that Lot being the primary character, I think, of this text, the writer helps us understand, God wants us to know that it was Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions also were taken, and he was now captured, and he was being taken from Sodom toward the north with this invading army as a slave. The consequences of rebelling against God are inevitable. I don't know if you're here today and you're living in rebellion and refusing God to be Lord of your life and compromising in some areas and not really giving God what is due him, but eventually, I'm here to tell you, consequences, consequences are going to come eventually. Eventually. And, and, and so we see here that Lot finally suffers the consequences. It's kind of like that old story that I remember reading about a farmer who, uh, there were some crows that were eating his crop, and so he and his son one day, he said on a Saturday morning, let's go out and let's shoot some of those old crows. So he took the the shotgun and they went out there and spooked up a couple of them and shot a couple of them and then he and the son went to sort of survey how many they had shot and by the son's surprise he noticed that not only were some of the crows killed but also some doves and pigeons were killed along with the crows as the fire was being heralded into the to the air 
The son, perplexed by that, turned to his dad and said, Dad, I don't understand this. Why would these doves be shot? Why were they killed? They were not crows. They were not eating the crop. And the father looked at him and said simply this, Bad company, son, bad company. You hang out with bad company long enough, and the consequences to those who are not living for God, those who are unrighteous, you, you bed with them and do business with them and engage with them long enough. When the judgment of God falls upon those who are unrighteous, it always and will affect the righteous as well. But the Bible says Lot was righteous. And yet, in spite of his righteousness, he was, he was engaging with unrighteous people. And when the judgment of God fell, he also received the brunt of that judgment of God. Notice not only fighting for our families will a warrior know that compromise is indefensible. Consequences are inevitable. The third of condemnation is unsuitable. Condemnation is unsuitable. A warrior should never condemn someone for falling flat on their face and uh, reaping the consequences of their choice. It's interesting here in verse 13, we see then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Ishkal, the Aner. These were allies of Abraham. Then, after the battle had concluded and everybody was running for their life, there was one soldier who was literally running for his life, decided while he was running, there's someone who I should run to. Now, we don't know if Lot sent him, but we do know that he's running. And if you look at the text, he, as he is running, he almost remembers that there is someone, and his name is Abram, who claims to have faith in God, who has somehow escaped the attack of these kings. His city, his clan have not been impacted and been touched by that. He not only remembers that, then he recognizes then that more than likely his capital G-O-D is greater than his lowercase G-O-D. And because Abram's God is greater than his gods, he then runs to Abram with the news of what has happened, thinking that somehow Abram is unaware of not only the, 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 the lot or the, the, the outcome that happened to Sodom and Gomorrah in the battle, but also the outcome of what happened to Lot. And in the response that I see here from Abram, I don't see any condemnation from Abram towards Sodom and Gomorrah nor for Lot. There's no response of that nature here. The text says something here by what it doesn't say more than by what it does say. It may not outwardly say this, what I'm talking about, but it does because we're going to see the response that Abram gave. And I think by what I want to say is this, that a lot of times those of us who consider ourselves warriors of the faith, when somebody finally reaps what they deserve, what is our response? Nanny, nanny, poop, poo. Nanny, nanny, poop, poo. <laughs> you finally got what you deserve. You've been running, you've been living, you've been rebelling from God, you've been living in sin, and now the judgment of God has fallen, and look at your plight. <laughs> Isn't that, come on, that's the natural reaction of somebody who finally reaps what they have sown? Isn't it? Isn't it? Come on, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're waiting for the hammer to fall on somebody right now. I know it. 
They're not following God. They're not living by faith. They're making choices that are eventually going to lead to consequences. And you keep wondering when the hammer is going to fall, when the judgment of God is finally going to come. And, 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 and when it does come, what are you going to do? <laughs> Rather than caring about them and being compassionate toward them and committing to being a warrior who will step in for those who, because of weakness, have made decisions and taken consequences that has led to consequences that have resulted in a fall. You know, the Bible constantly says to us as a church in many passages of the New Testament, I don't have time to go into that, that we should come alongside and encourage and support and undergird and strengthen and stand for the weak. A warrior should never condemn those who have finally reaped consequences for their sin. I don't think God ever, ever even in the end of the book of Revelation, which we're going to be studying in my class here in just a few minutes, Mike. Even in the final judgment seat of Christ, where he is sitting on his great white throne and he is judging those for their sins and sending them into an eternal bliss, he doesn't go, ha, 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 ha. He doesn't take pleasure in that. There's no delight in that. And we should never take delight, we should never take pleasure in the demise or the fall or the devastation of those who, because of their rebellion and their resistance to God, whether they're unrighteous or righteous, because condemnation is unsuitable for a warrior, because that was not Abraham's response. What is his response? We're going to learn about his response in verse 14, because we learn that complacency for Abram was not a choice. And we learn in this that a warrior fighting for his family knows that complacency is unacceptable. Abraham, Abram was nothing but concerned and involved in a solution. Notice verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth the train, his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and sent and went in pursuit as far as as Dan. Notice Abram. He received the messenger, and in receiving the messenger, the Bible says that he heard, he understood exactly what the conditions were. He realized the condition of, of, of his nephew, Lot. He was concerned about that, and notice in the text, he resolved to take action to help Lot come outside of his slavery and his captivity. Notice he heard that his kinmen had been taken captive. Lot was taken captive. He was taken against his will. And now his nephew, his family member, his kinsman now was being shackled. He was enslaved. He was taken captive against his will by the enemy. Do you know anybody like that today? And notice his plan of action. He assembles an army. And not a very large army, only 318 men who are it says here, who are trained, who are experienced, who have been in battles before, and they are trained warriors, and they have the weaponry that is necessary. He is, he is, he is ready for battle. He's not an aggressor, but he's ready now to get into action, and he takes the action. And notice not only that, but it says here that he leads the charge. I mean, it would have been understandable for King to say, you know what, I need to stay here, and you guys go rescue Lot. But it says here that he actually led the charge, and he led into battle. He was one of those, 
those commanders that when they went against the army, he was the first one to cross the dotted line and to engage the enemy. He led out front, and we see here that he traveled to Dan because this is an incredible journey. It's 160 miles. I don't know about you, but that's, that's a long way for a couple of people that are either on foot or horseback. 160 miles, he pursued them to Dan and beyond that. Complacency was not a part of his characteristic. It was not a part of his nature. He was just going to sit back and say, well, they got what they deserved, so therefore I'm going to passively just sit by and watch. He aggressively engaged in order to rescue his nephew, Lot. He became a part of the solution. He took action. Fifthly, we learned that combat is unavoidable. I think every warrior needs to understand that combat is unavoidable. I think, you know, Abram would probably more than likely would have liked to have sat at home and not become involved in the, in the, in the squirmish. And he probably would have liked to say, you know what? I don't want to engage in this, this battle. I wonder how many people today who are not engaged in the battle. Passively, complacently just sitting back, thinking that maybe conflict can be avoided. Conflict cannot be avoided because there's an enemy who's seeking to kill, to steal, and to destroy, and he is aggressively moving. You cannot sit there and not become involved in the battle. For if you do, you will become victim and your loved ones will become victims. The text says in verse 15, And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defended them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. And he, fought back all of the, he brought back all of the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the woman and the people. Notice he was committed to a strategy. He went by night because he wanted to surprise them. This was unexpected. He would not be seen. And he divided his, his forces more than likely to surround them. He had a committed strategy. Notice in the text that he conquered the enemy. It uses the word defeated. There was a battle. And as he engaged in combat, there was a, a battle that ensued. He knew that the only way that his nephew Lot would ever be set free was to engage in a battle. What if Lot had pursued them all the way to where he went, 160 miles, and he knocked on their door and said, would you pretty please let go of Lot, let, let Lot go? Pretty please? I mean, it's not politically correct for you to hold my nephew hostage, so would you please let them go? Is the enemy just going to give up what, he, what he's possessed now through a battle, through a struggle, through a war? And the enemy is going to do everything he can to hold on to what he has taken possession of. And he's not going to give up without a fight. And Abram knows that there has to be a fight. And in the fight, he defeats him. And notice, he not only defeats him, but he continues his pursuit even beyond where the battle was. Why did he After the victory had already been won in that battle, why did he continue to pursue them beyond there? Because he knew that if he let this king go without completely defeating him, this king would eventually get some more forces and come back, and he would have to see him again. And what that tells me is we can't be satisfied with just a partial victory. We have to keep fighting until the enemy is no longer a threat. You follow what I'm saying? 
When is our enemy, the, the devil, no longer a threat? Not in this life. And we've got to be committed to pursue and engage the enemy and fight him. But as long as we have breath, as long as we have life, until Jesus Christ returns as he promised he would, and we are caught up together with him in the clouds, and we are forever with the Lord. And until then, we're constantly engaging the enemy. But notice he confiscated the spoils of the enemy. He took not only what the enemy had taken, but he took everything the enemy had. Notice the passage. Then he brought back all the possessions, not just the possessions that he took from Sodom and Gomorrah and the other three city states, but he took everything the enemy had in his possession. He took everything. He took it all. He didn't leave anything there. But he also noticed he brought it all back and gave it back to Sodom and Gave it back to the people that had lost everything. But notice the last part. I think it's interesting that God records that he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. He brought back Lot. That was his objective. That was his goal. Lot was always in his view. He was always in his perspective. And it was Lot that he was seeking to liberate and to set free. And once the enemy had been defeated, he brought Lot back and all of his possessions back. This was no small thing here. Lot was an incredibly wealthy man. And there were flocks and there were herds and there were kinsmen and there were family members. It was a lot of stuff. And he brought it all back. And restored it all back to Lot. Abram knew that combat was unavoidable. Are you sure you're aware of that? Have you been passively sitting by and not really trying to engage the enemy, hoping that he would look past you or look beyond you or not recognize you or not see you? Because you know that once you get into the fight, it's going to cost you something. Notice, lastly then, a warrior fighting for their family will know that courage is rewardable. There's a reward for courage in the passage. In verse 17, we see that Sodom finally, the king of Sodom finally comes out of, out of hiding. I mean, he's been in the hill country. He's been hiding out. And now that this battle is over and Abram has come back with his warriors and all of the spoils from the victory and plus the stuff that they took from Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom uh, the king of Sodom is quick to come out and say, hey, I'm ready to claim what's mine now. But I can imagine him standing before Abram in humiliation, recognizing and realizing that Abram's God was greater than his little G.O.D.'s. And it was Abram who restored his possessions and was able to protect his possessions and not him nor his inferior gods. It was a humbling experience, I think. But... Nevertheless, it didn't stop Sodom from continuing on in his wickedness in spite of what God had done for him. Isn't it interesting? Have you ever thought about why God allows unrighteousness and unrighteous people to prosper? Have that other blown your mind? Because the king of Sodom in his wickedness and his unrighteousness prospers from the spoils of this battle. But Lot also was reconnected with all of his stuff. But notice the reward of Abram. What did Abram get out of this? Well, there's an introduction for us here to a guy who's sort of a, a very unique, very, very unusual guy. His name is Melchizedek. 
He's a very mysterious guy, and there's very little known about him. Uh, even though he's been studied for centuries, very little is known about this, this high priest king named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Verse 18, and Melchizedek, king of Salem. Melchizedek means king of righteousness and peace is the word Salem. So he's the king of righteousness in the city of Salem, which is the city of peace. So he's the king of righteousness in the city of peace. Salem was the city we know today called Jerusalem. Follow the connections? He's the king of righteousness who reigns in the, king of Pe- in the city of peace, the city of Salem, who is... And what is the city we know as Jerusalem today? But it says here that he is the high priest. He is the priest of God most high. He's a priest king. Did you know that later Paul in Hebrews says that Jesus was from the order of Melchizedek, meaning that he was higher in order than those, king, those priests that existed in the day of Jesus, that he is higher. He is from the lineage of Melchizedek, the king of righteousness who reigns over the city of peace. Peace with God. But notice what Melchizedek does. Verse 19, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. What did Abram receive out of all this? Three things. First of all, you take a look at the text, and he received a blessing from Melchizedek, the high priest. And when Melchizedek, who stand as a representative of God, blessed Abram, that means that God was blessing Abram. How would you like to know that you would leave from here today and go out with the blessing of God? That everything you touched would be blessed of God. Everything you did would be blessed by God. You are walking in and under the favor of the Lord, and in Christ you are. And here, Abram. Finally, receiving confirmation of his faith and knowing and leaving this place, knowing that he has received this incredible, miraculous blessing from God, the favor of God from this point. But notice in the text, too, that he recognized in this blessing the sovereignty of God. Who gave Abram the victory? What does the text say? God did. It wasn't his strategy, it wasn't his skill, it wasn't his availability, even that. It was God who used Abram to liberate Lot and to restore the possessions of Lot back to himself and to bring him back into the fold. It was God who did it. God's power through Abram and his 318 men, that was the power behind their victory. It was God who gained and attained and gave the victory. And I believe that was a part of his reward. He recognized that God had used him and God had moved through him to accomplish something that he could not have done independently and apart from God. I don't know of a better reward that you could ever receive to know that you have set out to do something for the Lord in the name of the Lord, and God has blessed that, and he has empowered you and enabled you to make it happen. Being a vessel of the Lord is the greatest blessing, I think, of all, as God is working through you to accomplish his plan and his purpose. And that was part of Abram's reward. And then lastly, I see that he reverence the Lord. That was a part of his reward. He was able to reverence the Lord. 
he was able to worship the Lord. How did he worship the Lord? Well, it says, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. He gave him a tenth of everything. I don't know if you realize it or not, but that's a lot of money. That's a lot of stuff. A tenth of all of the spoils of this incredibly wealthy empire, this coalition of these four powerful kings, these city-states, as they have come, and they've invaded all these cities around Sodom and Gomorrah, taken all of their stuff, and they've come into Sodom and Gomorrah and taken all of their stuff, and now Abram has engaged in battle. God has given him the victory, and now he's got all of this stuff, not only his, not only Lot's, but all of this stuff from all of this region, and he gives God one-tenth of all that he has as an act of worship. You study today in your life group about worship. And I don't know of a greater reward and a greater blessing than to be able to recognize the sovereignty of God, actively working in your life to give you what you have, and then to give God one-tenth in an act of worship to him. What a, what a wonderful reward for Abram to be able to reverence God in this manner. So as we close, I ask you this. Are you a warrior fighting for your family? Are you a warrior fighting for your family? Abram was not an aggressor, but he was a warrior. And he was a warrior who, when his family member desperately needed him to step up to the plate and to assume the role of a warrior... He went on the offensive. He went on the attack. He defeated the enemy. And he won for his family member a victory that he could not win alone. If you're defeated here today because you've been weak and you've made a couple of choices that have rendered circumstances and consequences in your life, you're not alone. Hopefully we as your church will encourage you, come alongside you and stand by you and help you in your recovery, in your redemption, and in your renewal. I hope that we would not be a church that would go, ha, 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 you got what you deserve. But as people of faith, we would stand up with you when you can't stand for yourself and sometimes fight your battles with you so that through it all, together, we can live and walk in victory. Maybe today you know somebody right now. They're a family member, they're a relative, they're a cousin, they're a nephew or a niece or a co-worker that once walked with God. They may not be unrighteous. They may be righteous people. They may, may be people of faith. But because of a series of compromises, they've strayed from God. Will you stand in the gap for them? Will you wage war for those who can't wage war for themselves? Will you do battle? Will you fight for your family? What is your response to the invitation of God for us to stand up, dress ourselves fully prepared for battle, and engage the enemy? We are on a battlefield, not a playground. And we're here to do war. 
And the enemy that we're fighting is relentless. He is ruthless. He is wicked. He is vile. He is cunning. He's like a roaring lion seeking whomever he may devour. But yet in Christ, we can stand against the wiles of the devil. We can submit and resist, submit to God, resist him, and we can see him flee. He can be defeated if we'll stand up and engage the enemy. Let's pray. song.